And there was this, I, we were at this Korean restaurant, and literally I was sucking the shells of the lobster because the seasoning and everything was so good. And so that would be something that somebody would say, that's to die for. You know, you might see <coughs> somebody's dress or a suit or some sort of clothing and say, oh, that's so wonderful, that's to die for. This car, if you're, if you are into fancy cars or something, somebody say, that's to die for. Or you're looking at a new house, or you're a cook, and there's this kitchen, and it's this gigantic kitchen. Well, that's to die for. And then there's things like chocolate cake, or cheesecake, or some desserts. People say that's to die for. I think you get the idea of what I'm saying. Things that people say that it's, I mean, if you literally take the words literally, it says that you're, this is worth dying for. But are you really willing to die for that? I, I hope not. Like, I really don't think that that's what you're, what you're going to do. And actually, when I hear that phrase, that's one of those things where I just kind of go, oh, like, really? Like, you're willing, that is so good that you are willing to die for that. That that piece of cake or whatever it is, that you're willing to give up your life just so you can have a piece of cake. Are you kidding me? That is not worth dying for. Last week I brought up this idea of a revolution. It's really nothing new. It's it, this Jesus revolution. It's a revolution. Now in revolutions, <clears throat> people are, are, they die for revolutions, right? You're willing to give your life for, for a revolution. You're willing to fight to the death because you feel so strongly about that. But this Jesus revolution is a little bit different. We aren't arming ourselves with weapons. Remember, we're not going to the army military store, to Shields or wherever, and just say, I want one of those and one of those and one of those and one of those. But we're arming ourselves with something else, right? I, looked, I asked you to read Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10 last week. It's about putting on an armor. But it's a different kind of armor. It's an armor of God. But let me remind you what it said in verse 12. So look at verse 12 with me. It says, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So we're not fighting each other for that last piece of chocolate cake that we think is to die for. But we're engaging in a battle where people's lives are at stake. But it's their eternal lives that we're talking about. Today we're going to look at, this, at the second part of Stephen's life. We're going to, we, mentioned, we talked about him last week. We're going to look at the entire, book, uh, the entire chapter 7 of Acts today. And this is a section that has a lot of firsts in it. But first, pun intended, Dan, I figured you would get that. So maybe next service. So, but I want to read Hebrews 3 verses 1 through 6 for you. First, so look, take a look at this with me. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declared to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God, who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses. Just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself, 
for every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful to God in to God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house, and we are God's house. If we keep our courage and remain confident in the hope in Christ. So if you remember last week, remember who Stephen is in front of now. He's in front of the Sanhedrin. These are the church leaders of the day. And these leaders are the ones that I said, they're, they're really into this law of Moses. They're really into Moses. You might even say that they elevate Moses in the law, maybe even above God, that following Moses and following this. So this is why I read this, this, this scripture. It's because it's kind of important saying that, nah, Moses is important, but Christ is better. And you also remember that Stephen's face is glowing like an angel. Stephen's filled with the Holy Spirit. And this verse in Hebrew says that we are God's house. Now that's significant because <clears throat> the Sanhedrin, they almost worship the temple more than they worship God. Now we don't need the temple anymore because God's with us. The temple is us. Now, I want us to read this out of Hebrews also so that we see Jesus deserves far more praise and glory than Moses. Because remember, the people that Stephen were in front of, they put Moses in very high regard. And we need to see that, that, the, the, that the need for the temple isn't there because we're in the presence of God. Now, I, I want you to keep this in mind that that Jesus is in charge of the entire God's entire house also. Jesus deserves everything. And by the end of today, hopefully we'll see one thing or maybe one person that is to die for. And that's Jesus. Now the, this high priest, these this people in charge, they, they go to Stephen and they say, are these charges true? Because the crowd rallied up all these people to say false things about Stephen. So now he's standing in front of them. And Stephen replies, big, long speech, big, long sermon, big, long preaching. And this is actually the, another, this is a first. This is the first of somebody other than apostle speaking, giving the gospel message, speaking about Jesus. And next we see this, this, this big, long speech And this. I'm going to summarize it because it's really long and we'll be here for a long time if I just read that. So let me just summarize some parts of that. So, the first thing we see within this speech is that Stephen gives an accounting of the patriarchs of Israel, the heroes of Israel. He speaks of Abraham. He speaks of Isaac. He speaks of Jacob. He speaks of Joseph. He speaks of Moses. Gives little bits of history of all of them. Now the people that are standing in front of him, they're going to know this information. They're going to know that. The next thing we see in Stephen's speech that we can pull out of this is he's saying that, you know what, God is everywhere. God was everywhere before this temple was built. And God is still here. And he, he points out examples of, of when God was speaking with people. God was, his presence was felt. In verse 3, he, we see God told him, leave your native, he's speaking to Abraham, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. He's having an interaction with Abraham. God's present. Verse 10, we read that God gave Joseph unusual wisdom. And then verse 32, a voice from a burning bush. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, God's presence. Verse 48, however, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. I'm saying God doesn't just live here. 
Point being that, that God is everywhere in history. He's everywhere in history of Israel. He's not just in this temple. Which, by the way, like I said, the Stephen, the people in Stephen are in front of, they've come to worship the temple almost in the contents of the rituals, kind of more than God itself. Rather than having a place, the temple to be a place to come and you meet with God, it's becoming a place where you come and you have these rituals, you have these traditions, and you have this rule following. You're just kind of going through the motions. Now Stephen also points out this constant rejection that the Israelites had of God. In verse 7, he recounts how God will punish Israel for their disobedience, for their rejection, and they will become slaves. But in the end, they will come to worship God again. Verse 23 and 25, Moses kills an Egyptian that is mistreating an Israelite. And Moses, it says, Stephen says, Moses assumed that the Israelites would realize that God has sent Moses to, to save them. But the Israelites refuse. They don't see that. Then verse 39, they see that the, we see the ancestors, <coughs> the Israelites, refuse to listen to Moses. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And they reject Moses. They reject what God is saying. And they, they ask Aaron and say, will you make us some idols? And then they begin to worship him. And then they say, well, we want to return to Egypt. Really turning their back on God. And I think this sets up for this event, a pretty major event in this Jesus revolution. A revolution that was to die for. But when we think of it, it isn't really death as we think of it, is it? Because in this Jesus revolution is where we find life. Because it's in Jesus that we find life. So I want us to look at the last nine verses in this section. We're going to look at Acts 7, 51 through 60. Follow along with me. Starting with verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at his feet, at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now those of you, if you're kind of a Marvel, Avengers movie freak like I am, and you watch these movies a hundred times like I have, if you remember a scene in, in Thor Ragnarok, there's, remember the stone guy named Korg? Korg gets this guy, gets, gets ready for the start the revolution. He says the revolution has begun. So this revolution has begun. Remember, it's not a revolution like we think, think it is, but it is one to die for. This Jesus revolution has actually already started. 
But as we continue in Acts, as we continue down this road of Acts, we're going to see that further and further that there's going to be a bigger reach of this revolution, not just in Jerusalem. But I, it's a revolution of people sharing the story of Jesus, sharing the message with others so that they can find life in Jesus. But I'm going to stop there because I'm not going to steal Aiden's thunder next week. So let's get back to Stephen. So what do we see from Stephen? I think one of the things we see from Stephen is he speaks the truth. Stephen spoke the truth. And when I read this speech, I, I see things in there that I think Stephen it really is. He's staying in his lane. He's not, you know, he's, he, these are people that are leaders. But he's speaking truth. He's staying in his lane. He's not speaking in anger. He's not yelling. He's not screaming. He's not speaking as in he's better than these leaders. I think Stephen was in control. Or should I say, I think the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit was giving him words to speak. And he was having to speaking with confidence, speaking this truth. Now, Stephen used the truth to create emotions in his listeners. And there's many people listening, and, and you would have different emotions based on, on what your beliefs were. And Stephen did say, I'll admit, Stephen said things that's going to get these leaders pretty fired up. And several times he says things, and, and as you, like in my class, I, I'm school, I'm learning some Greek, so I looked at some Greek stuff in this, and the way he said some things in Greek, in Greek would have got the leaders to pause and raise their eyebrows, like, what is he saying there? Like, what's going on here? And in the closing statements, when he starts, when he starts calling them stiff-necked people, well, that probably was the final straw, and they were, they were a little mad. But was the truth the problem? Is the truth the problem sometimes for us? And do we like to hear the truth all the time? Maybe it's how someone says the truth to you. A few months ago, I was at dinner with a friend. Kim and I were at dinner with a friend of, a friend of ours. And dinner went great. Everything was fine. And then at the end, we're all leaving, and Kim goes to the bathroom. And at the time, my friend thought that that was an appropriate time to call me fat. Now, I'm not going to say he was wrong. He's telling the truth. But it was the way he said it and the way he set me up. It wasn't really like he cared about me. It wasn't really like he loved me. It was more like he just wanted to make fun of me, kind of mock me. Now let's compare that to a doctor's appointment I went to a few weeks ago. Got on the scale, they write down the weight, you look, and you're going, eh, well, that's what it is. They write down the weight, doctor comes in, he makes a comment about it, but the comment's a little different. Because he asked me a question, well, how are you feeling? What's, you know, kind of what's going on? Why are you, you know, I see that you weighed this much, now you're this much. And, and he starts, like, talking about suggestions, like these are things we can do, the how is this, and it's like he cares about me. And then I go home and I read the chart, and he says nice things about me. He says, I'm pleasant. I'm this pleasant middle-aged man. And, and, it, and you look at conditions, and it says obesity is one of them. But it's a little less offensive. Both are saying the truth. So was the truth the problem? No, the truth wasn't the problem. It was the manner in which they spoke the truth. One was to make fun of me and really poke fun of me and put me down. The other was to inform me of, of what would be better for me. And they were showing concern to me. What would be better? 
point is, is that to make the truth in Jesus, the truth in Jesus isn't the problem. It's maybe how we speak it. Do we speak it in love? Do we speak it wanting what's best for the other person? We're respecting that person, but we're wanting, we're wanting what's best for them. Our concern is, is for them, well, to receive Jesus, receive life. Now, I hope you're kind of questioning going, okay, but Stephen didn't, like, there's some strong words there that Stephen used. Absolutely. When he starts saying these stiff-necked people, when he starts saying your hearts and ears are, are uncircumcised, and saying, asking a question, has there ever been any prophet or anybody that you guys haven't persecuted and, and killed? And then he starts saying, you know what? You guys are actually the ones that killed Jesus. Which, if you remember, if you've been here while we're talking about Acts, this isn't the first time these guys have heard this. Peter's told this to him like three times. Multiple times saying, you know what? You guys killed Jesus. Now these words are kind of abrasive. But sometimes we need to speak in boldness. So speak with boldness. Boldness to speak the truth. Stephen again was speaking the truth. He just got done giving them an account of, of Israel, kind of a history, how they rejected God, rejected his prophets throughout history. But he spoke in boldness to speak the truth. Boldness to speak the truth because well, opposition rose up against him. Notice Stephen was, was doing the work that he was appointed to do. He was just going about what God had him doing. And then this mob grabbed him, started saying lies about him, telling him. And Stephen, I would say, wasn't necessarily the aggressor in this. But he was facing the opposition, and when he was faced with that opposition, he spoke with boldness. But what is our motivation or situation we're in? When we're faced with some opposition, are we wanting to just be right? Are we wanting to just argue? Or are we wanting to see that I don't really have another choice here, so I'm just going to speak the truth and I'm going to be bold about it because I want people to have the same freedom in life that I have that's found in Jesus. A few weeks ago, I met with some of the staff, not all of them, and one of the things that came out of that, I wrote it on my whiteboard, is boldness. That word just kept coming up. It was boldness for us to speak in boldness, to be full of the Holy Spirit, to be full of grace and mercy still, but we have this boldness to speak the truth when given the opportunity. If you remember some of the movie, The Few Good Men, remember when Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson are having this, this discussion and Tom Cruise asks this question and Jack Nicholson stands up, the truth? You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Sometimes people aren't ready for the truth. And their reaction is like that of the Sanhedrin. Kind of like the reaction when my friend called me fat. I wasn't ready for that truth. I wasn't ready for it, but I heard it a few weeks ago when I went to the doctors. People aren't ready, but the next time they hear the gospel, maybe they will be ready. Because you had the boldness to speak the truth even though sometimes when you speak the truth, you might have some dire consequences. But at times, we need to speak boldly and let the Holy Spirit give us the courage and the strength to do it. Let's look at verse 58. It says, The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young name, man named Saul. 
speaking, knowing you will have an unseen impact. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Saul because we're going to spend some, a lot of time on him in the next few weeks. But maybe we could ask. We don't know. We, we have no idea. Does, the scripture doesn't say this, but we might know. But maybe those people hearing that day, maybe Paul, maybe Saul who was listening, maybe, just maybe, there was something that Stephen spoke that planted a seed. Planted a seed in Saul. So that when, in the future, we'll talk about it, maybe there was a seed. Because you never know what the effects of words that you speak today will have in the future. This week, I don't think Deb is in here right now, but Deb and I, oh, she is. Deb and I were able to do that. We had this this young lady show up at our front door. I was just leaving, letting some guys out that I was meeting with, and, and this lady showed up. She was distressed. She was in a crisis. You could just kind of say she was a hot mess. She just, it, was, it, was, it was crazy. But we let her come in. She used the bathroom, talked to her, gave her some warm clothes. She, I mean, it was cold. She, barely, she didn't really have warm clothes on. Gave her some shoes, just talked to her. And I would say I think she left with dignity. She came in here, she felt cared for. She felt like, like her life mattered. Now, Deb was the one that spoke with her more than I did. But I could hear some little things, but I could hear Deb speaking truth. I could de- hear Deb speaking in love, but I could hear some boldness in there too. Now, this young lady left and she, neither Deb or I know what's, what, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I, I'm going to you to guess that maybe this small interaction might have some, 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 something in the future. This unseen impact that will happen with that person. I hope it's that she'll experience Jesus. That she experienced Jesus and she'll experience Jesus in a new way in the future. So those small and those large experiences that we have with each other, that we have with others, we don't know what kind of impact they're going to have. But people later in their life, hopefully it's a kingdom impact. Hopefully it's an impact where they experience Jesus themselves, they discover this life in Jesus, they, they give their life to Jesus, and they receive this life, this eternal life that we find in Jesus, that this life that is part of this Jesus revolution. But this is maybe the questions we need to ask. Do the things you do today, are they for you or are they for Jesus? If you want to have a lasting impact in this Jesus revolution, if you want to have an impact for the kingdom of God, an impact where we see what we've been seeing in Acts where there are people coming to know Jesus in numbers, great numbers, every single day. I would say we need to do those things for Jesus so that this unseen impact, something that we have no idea are going to result in people following Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then those people will also have an unseen impact on other people. Lastly, in this section of Acts, we, we see something, another first. We see the first martyr. The first person put to death for the belief in their Jesus. 
I know the text says it, he fell asleep, but he was stoned to death. Now I talk about a Jesus revolution, one that's with grace and mercy and love. We're fighting against an enemy in a spiritual realm. But as we can see, sometimes this battle turns violent by the people that are opposed to it. Now I'm assuming that Stephen's face was still glowing like an angel. Glowing like an angel because he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he has Christ dwelling inside of him. In fact, there's another verse that we see here too. In verses 55 through 56, Stephen looks up into the sky and he sees Jesus standing with his father, standing at the right hand of his father. Now this is the first time since the apostles saw Jesus ascend into heaven that someone has looked up into heaven and actually saw Jesus. That's recorded. Now Stephen, he, he's being stoned. He sees Jesus. He, he, he says, says to Jesus, receive my spirit. Now just think of that picture. You are, you, say you're Stephen. You have rocks being hurled at you as hard as people can throw them. They are hitting you. They're breaking bones. You're bleeding. They hurt. He's in pain. And Stephen is looking to Jesus saying, receive my spirit. I don't get a sense that he's in distress, that he is calm, he is peaceful, he is at peace. Now, a few months ago on Sunday, I was sitting in this chair right there that I usually sit in before I get up here and preach. I was sitting here and a group of people walked in. The room was really dark that day. We kind of dimmed the lights that day. A group of people walk in, and I got this strange feeling come over me. And it was, it was just really weird. It wasn't the people that came in. It wasn't them that, that, that were the, there was nothing wrong with them. It was just this, this feeling I had. And I processed first for a while because it's been a few weeks. So I've been able to process. And I realized that, that what I think the Holy Spirit was stirring up inside of me was asking me, said, are you ready to die today? Are you ready to die for me today? Are you willing to get up here, practice what you preach, are you willing, to, so to speak, to take a bullet for Jesus? And the thing was, is instead of like freaking out because that's like, no one really wants to die, right? But instead of that, there was like this calm that rest over me, this peace that was over me, a peace that I really had never felt before, a peace that I can only say was from the Holy Spirit. And, and it wasn't. I've never experienced that before. Now, maybe... God was giving me that experience because he knew that this sermon was coming up, that he knew I was going to talk about Stephen, so I could just have just a tiny flicker of this peace that maybe Stephen felt. Maybe it was something greater. I don't know. I don't know what the unseen impact of this experience will be. I do know that it gave me a new perspective of what Jesus is asking of me. What I think he's asking of all of us. What it means when Jesus asks us to lose our life to gain life. Are we willing to give up everything? Even our life in this Jesus revolution so that we can find life. When we look at this story of Stephen and what I said last, year, last week in 2021, 6,000 people realized that this life on earth it's worth losing for Jesus. And I still think that's what Jesus is asking us to do. I want to conclude with Stephen's last words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
Do these words sound familiar to anybody? Luke 23 through 24. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Speak forgiveness. Stephen, on his last breaths, he still has this kingdom perspective, this kingdom mind in this Jesus revolution that instead of thinking about himself, thinking of the pain and everything that he's going through by being stoned, he's asking God to forgive them. Just as Jesus did when he was on the cross. When, when he was being put to death, literally probably by the same group of people. I think the only way is that could happen is Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. And last week what I said when he's got this complete package, when he's having, he's full of wisdom, he's full of grace, he's full of faith, and he's full of power. Could it even be possible for them to ask Jesus, forgive them. Forgive them for what he's doing. Asking for forgiveness for his enemies. So that these enemies can still have a chance to receive forgiveness for their sins, for them to still receive life, for them to also join this revolution. This is crazy. But this is what it's about, isn't it? It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about those enemies that Je- to Jesus, those that hate us because we believe in Jesus. It's about speaking to others in a way that it's about them also seeing in this, seeing Jesus, being part of this revolution, being part of seeing the kingdom of God, seeing what the kingdom of God has to offer, which is life. It's forgiveness of our sins from Jesus and receiving eternal life in the presence of Jesus forever. Now, I've told this story before, and, and I just want to say, because it's, it's one of the best stories of forgiveness I know. It's, a, it's about Eva Kor, who was, if you don't know, it's, she was one of the twins that, in World War II that was <coughs> captured by the Nazis, and she lost her entire family. And her and her sister, they did these horrible, horrible experiments on her, just tortured her and her sister. Her and her sister survived. And then in 1995, Eva, on the 50th anniversary of the freedom that she, from Auschwitz, of the, the liberation from Auschwitz, she, she gave a statement where she forgave all the Nazis for everything they've done, for all the devastation in her life, for her family's life, for everything they, they, that they've done. She forgave them. Is it a time to let go of maybe unforgiveness in our hearts? Is it time to forgive others? Well, as we've been forgiven. Because I hate to break it to all of us, but none of us deserve the forgiveness that, that we receive from Jesus. But forgiveness is something Jesus is asking us to join in. He's asking us to join in this revolution. First, for us to receive this forgiveness, and then for us to give this forgiveness. Title of this sermon, To Die For. Is Jesus to die for? I think so. Many of you think so. Stephen certainly thought so. Jesus, he does ask a lot of us. Yes, for all of us. Think about this. Jesus thought we were to die for also. Because Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. 
God saw that, that he looked at us and said, these guys, like, I need to send my son. My son is the only way to save, for, save this world. He sent his son to have his son lose his life so that we can gain life. God thought we were to die for. Can't we realize that this gift that we've received, this is to die for. Jesus is to die for. Nothing else. Not that last piece of chocolate cake. Jesus is to die for. Lord, I just pray for I pray for all the martyrs, Lord, that throughout history, Lord, that have given their lives for you. That they saw you as the most important things in their lives that you were worth dying for. You, Jesus is to die for. Lord, so I just pray for everybody in this room, Lord, that, that this message, that this, this forgiveness that we've received, this life that we've received from you, this life here on earth, this is just temporary, but this eternal life that we have with you in your presence, with you and your Father, Lord, it, it, it is to die for, and it is eternal life. Lord, I just thank you for that. Lord, let that just grow in us so that we see that the only thing worth dying for is, is you, is Jesus. Lord, I just want to give some everybody opportunity. Lord, if, if you're hearing these words, if someone in this room is hearing these words and they're like, I want to be part of this kingdom. I want to receive this life. I, want, I, I get what you're saying. I get that Jesus is to die for. And by this, I get life. I have this forgiveness of my sins. And, and I get to have a new life with you, new life with Jesus. That's you. If you want to just maybe look up at me and raise your hand and, and just say yes to Jesus. Say, yes, I see you. Say, yes, I see you. Yes, I see you. Lord, just thank you. Thank you for these people, Lord, that are part of the family, that are part of the kingdom now. We can look up in heaven and we can see you and angels and everybody rejoicing, these people that have come home. Lord, we thank you. Lord, I just pray for the Holy Spirit to just come upon these people that have said yes to you today. Lord, give them the strength. Give them the power. Give them the faith. Give them the, the, just to be able to walk in this new life with you. In your name we pray. Amen.